According to Google, the use of the word fiduciary has increased by almost a thousand percent since 1990. How do they get those stats? I honestly have no idea. But if your advisor isn't a fiduciary and signed a fiduciary oath, then you probably have a giant conflict of interest between you and them. Let's talk about why that's a bad thing for your money. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, this guy, Jimmy, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Reinemann, and welcome back to the show. It is Wednesday, my friends, and we have our amazing co-host, Jimmy here. What's up, guys? Yeah, Ryan, I'm excited about today's show. I talk about this a lot with my residents, my students. It's in my personal finance curriculum that I'm creating. And you know what I tell them about conflicts of interest, right? So when you're going to consume financial advice, you need to get three things. You need to get good advice at the lowest price and with the least conflict of interest. If you're the consumer of the advice, that's your, that's your job, you know? And so today we're going to talk a little bit about that third piece, the conflicts of interest and where exactly conflicts of interest exist in the financial advice industry. But before we jump in, it's time for that important disclaimer. So this show is not personalized financial advice for you. In fact, this is for entertainment purposes only and should be seen as general education. Neither of us can give you any specific advice on your financial situation through this show. So if you aren't a do-it-yourself financial guru, you should consult an attorney, CPA, or a fee-only financial planner like Ryan before you make any big money decisions. So Ryan, let's just dive right in here, man. So I am passionate about this subject, and I, I think it's probably warranted to tell you why before before we dive into it. Let's jump in and why you're literally popping out of your seat right now as we record. <laughs> yeah, so I, I had two experiences really early in training that really shaped my my views of the financial industry. And so the first one happened when I was at the very end of my third year of medical school. We had our first kid, actually. So. I wanted to get life insurance. I wanted to get term life insurance. I at least knew that much back then. And I approached somebody who was the brother of one of my medical school classmates and you know, said, hey, you sell insurance. I need term life insurance. What do you say? And he's like, yeah, sure, of course, we can do that. You have a kid, that makes sense. But have you considered getting disability insurance? I said, well, you know, I don't really know how that works. At the time, I knew nothing about money. Um, this is four or five years before I really started diving into stuff. And so I said, why would I, why would I need that though? I don't really have an income to protect. And he said, well, you know, you should probably just apply for it. You know, it's good to get before you, you know, you find out you have any medical problems. Do you have any medical issues? And I said, well, yeah, I've got an essential trimmer that I take propranolol for it. And you know, a few other things. And I said, I just, I just don't really feel like I need that right now. And he kept kind of going back and forth. I said no more than once to applying for disability insurance. And despite the fact that this person selling me the product should have known that a guaranteed policy exists in training that doesn't require a medical history, it doesn't require an exam, it doesn't require anything other than just applying, basically. He had me apply with my known medical history, and I got denied disability insurance. So when I got to residency and wanted to get that guaranteed disability insurance policy that doesn't require anything, they said, well, the only stipulation is, of course, that you haven't been denied from disability insurance. That hasn't happened to you, right? And I said, oh, actually it did. It happened to me at the end of my third year of medical school when I had my kid and someone convinced me to apply for disability. And they said, oh, well, you can't get disability insurance then. And so to this day, I do not have personal disability insurance because someone was trying to earn a commission off of me selling me a product when I didn't need to apply and they should have known I was going to have a chance of getting rejected and should have said, don't do this. And so that that really kind of shaped my my first interaction with with the financial industry. Yeah. And they were, you know, probably working at one of these giant shops, these broker dealers or giant insurance company. Like, I don't know, you can say wherever it doesn't matter. Northwestern mutual. Oh, dun, dun, dun. We dun, always dun, dun. even in, in what's, what's did I need to say it? You can do whatever you want. No, no. I'm just saying, I think most people probably listen to that story. Might've known that. Yeah. I would think, well, the ones that have been burned, which are a lot of them, yeah. uh, from that, but you know, it's, it's, it's even funny, like Northwestern's product is even terrible in its own, right? The true own Oc, you know, doesn't truly exist inside there. And there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons I won't jump into Northwestern Mutual's policies, but even that policy that you were trying to get, wasn't even going to be that great of a policy. <laughs> yeah. I found, I found that out later. 
of course of course and and i'm sure so it was a buddy of a you know buddy's brother in med school like he's probably a good dude and a lot of these guys and gals out there that are selling products they're not bad people i have probably half a dozen friends that are fee-based planners that's and we'll we'll probably talk fee only versus fee-based but they're fee-based and i always joke with them i'm like why don't you guys come fee only like it's lonely on this side because less than three percent of anyone who calls himself an advisor or a financial planner is fee only and they're like why would i give up 70 percent of my income to come do that and i'm like well there's there's a lot of conflicts of interest that are you know really not in your client's best interest and you should sign a fiduciary oath and do what's right because that's what the consumer needs yep and 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 that and that's the thing so and just to backtrack a little bit I say that exact same thing to anybody that I talk about on this topic. Just because an advisor has these conflicts doesn't make them a bad person. The the guy that tried to sell me that product didn't, in my mind, know any better. He wasn't trained well enough to, to prevent that from happening to me. And when I went and talked to truly independent insurance agents later, they were flabbergasted by that by that happening but the guy was a good guy so i, I don't want to confuse those two things he's still a good good dude good guy and i'm still friends with his brother but i would i would never i'd, ha I'd have a fine time having a beer with him but he shouldn't have sold me the product or tried to yeah no it makes sense uh so when you look at these giant companies like they have this huge marketing budget millions and millions of dollars right even look at like you know morgan stanley merrill lynch the the big big ones right during grad school i actually worked uh, almost a whole year at merrill lynch and was offered a job and instantly declined it and actually was really turned off on the whole industry and like it delayed me actually doing like real financial planning hmm. for like three years because i thought all everything that i set my whole life up to was essentially a sham when you hmm. come in it's, it's 95 or more percent sales and five percent real planning work and, and I'm talking literally how I was doing work at, at Merrill Lynch. And as the intern, I was building out the plans for their clients that they would literally go, what did New York tell us we can invest in? Oh, it's this list. This is what we'll pick. Of course, it's proprietary funds mm -hmm. with expense ratios. You know, of course it's that because they have thousands and thousands of, you know, quote unquote advisors across the country that go through their two-year crash course training and you know, it's again, 95% sales. So he probably didn't know what right. is the right. thing. He probably it's was a pretty good salesman because that's how he was trained, but he probably didn't know any better, which, you know, is, it doesn't mean that again, they're, they're bad people. It's just, you guys have to understand the, there's conflicts of interest. And I know Jimmy, you're going to want to dive into this more, but yeah. And so, so when we're trying to get this financial advice from somebody, it's our job again to get really good advice at the lowest price with the least amount of conflict of interest. And so I recognize that when I'm giving talks to my students, to my residents, that they often don't have enough financial literacy yet. They don't have enough financial knowledge to know what good advice looks like. They can determine based on the fee model how, about how much they'll be paying. So what I really spend the majority of my time teaching them about is how to identify conflicts of interest. And and I start off by, you know, by telling them to ask very specifically, how do you get paid? Which is a very different question than how am I going to pay you? I, I ask the people, I teach my students and residents to ask, how do you get paid? And they're going to end up giving some answers. And so I want to define what my, my gold standard for financial advice looks like. And then we can go through the terms so that when they find out how that person gets paid, they'll know what those terms mean. Yeah. That sounds good. Uh, and as we go through that, we should also talk about the ways that if I don't know what your gold standard truly is, and I'm, I'm going to learn as everyone else is, we're going to go through that. But I do want to talk all the different ways that advisors could be paid. So when they ask that question, they don't just look deer in headlights like, yes, that makes sense. When in reality, you need to actually know what they're about to say. And then you can make up your own mind and decide whether those answers are okay. Exactly. So Here's my gold standard and nobody makes it onto my, my website that, you know, as a recommended financial advisor, unless they meet these four things, which is why you might notice my, my recommendation list is quite, quite limited. And Ryan is one of the people that's on it. What's that? You have a website? I do. I'm the physician philosopher. You should check it out. It's awesome. Just some guy, Jimmy. All right, let's, let's jump in. That's right. So here are the four, I'm gonna list them and then we'll go back and talk about them individually. So the first one is fee only. So the, the financial advisor works in a fee only model. That's different than a fee based model, which we'll jump into. Number two is that they're flat fee. That means they get paid a flat fee for their work as opposed to getting paid a percentage of assets. 
Number three is that they are a fiduciary, which Ryan alluded to earlier, being a fiduciary or signing a fiduciary oath. The fourth is having experience working with physicians. So a flat fee-only fiduciary advisor who has experience working with doctors meets my gold standard. So let's start with number one, fee-only versus fee-based. Ryan, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Hooray for unicorns, because that's what you kind of described. That's why there's only like four or five on my site. <laughs> that's why I feel like sometimes we are. So there's fee-only and there's fee-based. And the only and the based, it sounds so much alike, but they're so far from each other in terms of being alike that you really need to pay attention to those. So most advisors, if you line up a hundred people in one room that are all financial advisors, they could also be called financial planners. Sometimes they even call themselves investment advisors or investment managers. There's so many different names. Really, it they're all the same thing. And if you line up a hundred people, 97 or more of those people are going to be fee-based planners. Mm -hmm. AFA did the study. That's what they found is that the overwhelming majority, literally 97 plus percent are fee-based. And what that means is not only can they earn money from their client, which is totally fine. They then can earn kickbacks or commissions on products that they sell or they could, let's say, Jimmy, I've got a great CPA that I think you need to work with. His name is John and you need to work with John because he's stellar and amazing. What I forgot to tell you was, by the way, every time I send John a client, John can pay me, I don't know, a thousand bucks. And that is like my compensation for referring John business, almost like an affiliate model, but it's that transition over. Fee-based advisors can do that. So now you're going to be like, did Ryan say that John, the CPA is really good because he believes that? Mm -hmm. Or is it paid a thousand bucks? Yeah. And, and that's an important distinction, right? So if you get paid commission from products, from, you know, well, let's, uh, let's actually break that out really quick sure. because getting paid for commission on products, they're probably thinking like, well, what products let's just take insurance as an example, right? Disability is a product In sure. insurance are products. Some of them you need term insurance. That's a good one. Disability. That's the most important one. Whole life insurance, horrible one. Don't buy that don't product. Do it. Okay. So let's just stick with those three. They're all three products. Some are good. Some are bad. Insurance is super archaic in terms of an industry. Mm -hmm. They have to have someone facilitate the sale of it by an insurance agent that has to earn their living somehow. And it comes from the policies that they sell. So insurance agents have to have that commission structure because it's the only way they're going to get paid. But your advisor doesn't need to have that. And that's a huge thing because sometimes as an advisor, I'm like, I wish I could just take care of all of this for them. Like, I wish I could just give them the products. I could manage the money. I can give them the great advice. They don't have to go anywhere else, but you can't because I'm not licensed to sell insurance that that is someone else is doing that. And I couldn't even turn off the commissions. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't be like, Hey guardian, get this policy for Jimmy. And as Jimmy goes through it and pays guardian, the premiums, I can't even tell them like, I don't want it. I just want to do this for free to help him. Like even if I was licensed, it's, it's just an archaic industry. It's the way it's built. So commissions are going to be earned when someone sells that product and some products are good and some products are bad. Yeah. And, and so just to, to follow up on that. So when people are buying products, that's why many of us recommend using an independent insurance agent who can sell these because that's their version, the insurance industry's version of the least conflict of interest, because they're not tied to a specific company that mandates that they sell a certain number of their products or that they favor them. And so that, that's the insurance side of that. But, you know, Ryan, so like if I've heard this said before by fee-based advisors, and I've had this asked to me by students and residents, you know, why wouldn't you, like, why wouldn't you use an advisor where it's a, a one-stop shop and, you know, you get to do everything that you need, get your products, get your advice and all that stuff from, from the same person. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think that I'd, I'd love to hear what you think too, but I often tell those people, this is like, the pharmaceutical industry. And at my hospital now, the pharmaceutical reps aren't really allowed without like very explicit instruction to come into the hospital. And they have to, we have to know that they're there. They can't give us free lunch. They can't give us other things that are considered conflicts that would otherwise encourage us to, to sell their products or to use their products on patients. And so one of the reasons why is, is it makes sense, right? If you have, and this is, this is actually without naming any products, really 
kind of common in what I do in regional anesthesia. There's one drug out there that I guess I can name non-brand names, but it's liposomal bupivacaine. And it's, it's sold as this drug that lasts for 72 hours, 48 to 72 hours, and it makes your nerve block last a really long time. And so if I, you have a pharmaceutical rep from that company come in and say, Hey, this is the best drug out there. And, you know, we've have studies that show it's head and shoulders better than, you know, placebo and it's head and shoulders better than other options. And we highly recommend it to you. And they, they tell you all this glamorous stuff about this drug. You're going to be more likely as a person, as a human, as a doctor to use that drug because they recommended it. Now, if they recommend it and they get paid because you use it, well, they've given you the advice at the same time that they're making money from you using more of it. And so there's a conflict there. And like you said earlier, you can't tell if that advice is because it's good for you or if it's because they're going to make money from it. So what, what do you think, Ryan? Yeah. So, okay. A couple of things. One is they're, they're getting paid by the company to come out and to meet in front of physicians sure. to give them, let's say a really nice lunch and explain the drug. No, I don't think there's actually anything wrong with that in, inherently because they, you know, what's coming right? And as a physician, you truly understand that. And you're not getting really compensated on that. Now you could, depending on the drug and what it is, but you're not getting compensated then to go push it as much as you can. Like, you're just like, wow, that's really helpful information. And just because they give you a, a nice lunch and Kathy was really awesome when she came in and talked to you guys, that might be enough bias. That framing might mm -hmm. be enough bias to be like, I should just actually just use that one as opposed to XYZ drug. I don't I won't even yeah. pretend to heck you just said in terms of what or if you're talking. on the fence or if you're on the fence and you're like well i mean i don't really see reason you know i mean i, I guess this is a good choice in this situation i'm 50 50 about it you're definitely going to do it because you, you know like you haven't for, for a lunch right for a lunch, right advisors are getting paid thousands of dollars when you transact for a disability policy the normal policy that all of you listening are going to be buying is probably going to pay that insurance person about 2,500 to maybe 3,000 bucks. Now, if you are making a million dollars a year and you've got to go out and buy this massive policy, whatever, that that is totally different. But the average person listening here, the average physician, whoever sells you that policy is going to make probably about, let's call it three grand to be easy. Mm. If they sell you a whole life policy, those can range from 10,000 to $50,000 commissions, mm -hmm. right? Now they're, you're going to an advisor and you're saying, look, I'm going to trust you with my money for you to give me the right information and for you to help me through and navigate my financial journey. There, that's a huge trust thing. No one wakes up. And, and I realize this even as an advisor, no one wakes up and is like, oh man, I can't wait to tell this completely random person that I've never met all of my financial secrets. Right. And to, but that's what you need to do. You need to explain to the advisor who you are and if a good advisor would help kind of get that information out without making you feel awkward. But do you really want to then go to someone that can earn 10 to upwards of $50,000 by selling you a product that you probably don't need? Right. Even if you do need, are they doing it because they're selling this product because Guardian, let's say, was the best choice over principal or mass mutual? Or is it because they're a Guardian rep and that's all they can sell? Right. And, and so, you know, the take home here really is that you want to separate where you get your advice from where you buy your insurance products, because then the person who's giving you the advice is doing it because it's the right thing for you and not because they're making money from it. So that limits the conflict of interest. And we probably should have started this off by saying that every model, no matter how good it is, has some conflict, right? Yeah. If your advisor is telling you that, Hey, like, I don't have a conflict of interest at all. I'm a hundred percent conflict free. They're either lying to you and trying to deceive you or mislead you, or they just haven't been in business long enough to know what their actual conflicts are. Right. Now you could be near conflict free, right? But you always have something. And so I know we're going to talk about like AUM versus flat fee and all that, like AUM model people or assets under management where they charge a percent, uh, or percentage, um, of the assets that they manage for you. So let's just say easy math, you had a million dollars and they're going to charge 1% to manage that money. Your fee would be $10,000. Now, if you said, Hey, I'm thinking that, you know, I've got a lot of money here and I should maybe pay down the rest of my student debt. Mm. The conflict exists that the advisor goes, well, instead of liquidating 200,000 of this money to go pay down your debt, and that means that they make less money. Why don't you keep investing it and your re, you know, potential return in the market 
will far outweigh the interest you're paying on your student debt. They're not incentivized to tell you the obvious best choice of just pay down your debt. Yeah. That's Yeah. That's not how they're paid. They would lose $2,000 of income if they told you to do that. Now, I'm again, I'm making this a weird scenario, but just trying to keep the math easy. If they have that fee structure and all fee structures still have conflicts, right. if that fee structure, that's the conflict of interest. So under, understand that out of everything, every advisor has some conflict of interest. It's how much conflict do they have? And I, the easiest one, the slam dunk one, is that if they sell products, they have a massive conflict of interest that their income, they don't have to disclose what it is. And it could be significantly more than even what you're paying them. And I see this a lot, and I know you do too, of the quote unquote advisors that sell products and give the planning away for free. Yeah. Much. Everyone makes money. If they weren't making money, they wouldn't be able to do what they're doing and live. Yeah. So there's no free lunch. If you're getting planning for free, it's probably not going to be that great of advice. It's probably not going to be truly individual to your situation. It's maybe a little bit of fluff and education. Maybe they do a deep dive. Really what they're going to do though is, okay, now that we've got you here, you sign the agreement. Let's first things first, let's make sure that we've got your insurances in place and that your investments are doing correct. Guess yep. what? Because they can charge on those things. That's why they want to capture the income right away and they'll do the planning on the back end for free. You know, it's it, it just nothing's free. Right. And and they can also make products from your investments too, if they put you in loaded funds and things of that nature. So so the the there's just conflicts riddled with all of that. And so a fee only model, and I say this in my book, I mean, it's you know, a little a little bit of tongue in cheek, but a fee only model is the only model you should use in my opinion. So I, I went through a lot of the fee-based piece and I didn't really come back to that fee-only piece. So while the fee-based advisors can not only charge you a fee, whatever it is, flat, AUM, doesn't matter how they're charging. They charge in the client a fee that's disclosed in their contract, their ADV, which is our required disclosures, You know, being a, a registered investment advisor. Then they can earn the commissions on products or they can receive you know, new client kickbacks from tax people or estate planning whatever it may be, the fee-only model states the only money that we make is in what is in our client agreement. So if I say, Jimmy, I'm going to do planning for $10 and investment management is $10, that's all I can make. So if I read you to mm-hmm. Bob, the CPA, Bob can't buy me a Starbucks cup of coffee. Like it's not black and white. Even if I'm Bob's client personally, he can't do anything for me because now I refer clients to him. And, yeah, and and to be fair, just because you know, I think it's good to have kind of a view from both sides and the devil's advocate argument. In that scenario where you're paid ten dollars, or let's say you're paid five thousand dollars a year to provide financial planning, financial advice, the other side would say, "Well, your conflict of interest is to spend the least amount of time that you can on your client's investment portfolio and financial planning because you're going to make." that money regardless and that people that are you know paid by the hour for example which you can be flat fee and be paid by the hour and, and we kind of warp these two things so fee only versus fee based and then flat fee is the second one so flat fee if you're paid by that either by the hour by the month by the quarter however that's done you know there are different conflicts there depending on how it's how it's structured so if you're paid by the hour you're obviously conflicted even if you're fee only to spend as much time as you can on someone's portfolio because you're paid by the hour so that's why it's really, really important to understand the fee structure and to recognize where the conflicts are. So you already, you already talked about this a little bit, Ryan. I think it's, you know maybe we can move into the, the second one, but the flat fee part versus assets under management or AUM or other various kinds of models. And you you, just, you described that earlier, the 1% of a million, you paid $10,000, that's an assets under management. And the way that I explain that to people is essentially in an assets under management model, anything that takes money away from your assets that are being managed or doesn't put more money into assets that could be managed provides a conflict of interest. And so the list here, I mean, it's a, there's a very long list of things that don't do that, that are actually pretty good financial decisions a lot of the time, like paying down your mortgage or paying off your student loans or delaying social security until age 70 and not taking it earlier. And all of those things, because they either prevent more money going into the assets being managed or they take money out of that pool will provide a potential conflict 
which is was why a flat fee model potentially provides less conflict financially for for the advisor that's giving you financial planning advice. Yeah, so there's different models, right? It's do you sell products, right? And this was some of the stuff we were talking about. It could be annuities, it could be insurance, it could be you know, even just different mutual funds or individual stocks, like I guess not not that as much, but you know, it's the products. And then there's investing the money and charging a percentage on those assets, like that one million dollar portfolio that charged one percent. Which fee only and fee based can do, right? So one can do any of these. Technically, fee right. only can do the, the first one, but any the rest of them I'm about to say can do these. Then you can have right. a subscription or a retainer base which is essentially that flat fee. Hey, I'm going to work with you and it's $5,000 for the year. There's hourly work. Hey, I charge $300 an hour. And typically a plan you know, takes 20 hours to work through, but that's not going to say, oh, it took you 12 and that you know this is what I'm charging or hey, it took me 30. You, you don't really describe that up front. It's this is what it is and this is generally what happens, right? Conflict could take more time, likely take more time. Think about when you get things bid out, on an hourly rate and then you end up getting a bigger bill. So you, it's just variable. You don't know what's happening. And then there's like project by, uh, work. So it's, hey, I'm going to build you a plan and it costs $4,000. Right? Mm-hmm. And it'll usually take anywhere from two to three months. And when it's done, go off on your own. Good luck. They don't do that where it's like, hey, I'll manage your money on a project basis. That, that doesn't work that way. You can go to someone and pay them hourly to say, review my portfolio. Right, so you could check back in with an hourly advisor. That that's kind of, and I know I know there are advisors out there that I would recommend that that kind of work in that model where they they build you a plan, because I, I guess the way that I explain this to people, three different groups of doctors, right? The do-it-yourself gurus, the people that want the dot, the eyes cross the t's. They know enough to maybe do it themselves, but they don't really feel that way. And and honestly, maybe they don't know enough. And so they want professional help. And the third group that doesn't want to know anything about it, they want to hand it off to the financial planner and let them do everything. That middle group is an appropriate group of people to go out, have a plan built, in my opinion, and then to potentially pay someone hourly when they need to check in for specific things to have help or to stick to the plan or, or what have you. And so there, there are situations where I think an hourly model, you know, is appropriate. Yeah, it's funny you're, you're mentioning this because we're literally designing, redesigning some of the offerings that we're doing. And this isn't a pitch for what we're doing, but we're looking at is like, there's a DIY person who wants to uh-huh. do it completely themselves. And that's, some people listening to this and other shows and reading blogs, they're getting all the information. They're I'll never hear from them. Uh, hopefully they can drop in and say, Hey, I love the show. It helped me do X, Y, Z. Cause that makes me feel better and allows me to sure. continue doing uh, this. Cause the, this is not for monetary gain. This is really, a, I, I love doing this. It's just like how you do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like done with you, right? They want someone in the passenger seat. They want to drive. They want to understand what they need to know specific to their situation. And they just need someone in the passenger seat saying, hey, stay on track. Don't hit that pothole. Keep going. Don't, nope, don't veer right. Go straight. This is the path. Oh, you want to deviate your path? Okay, we can jump over, switch a lane, but at least we're going down that. And then there's people that just truly want it done for them. Typically, you know, at Physician Well Services, we've done just the done for you concept where it's, we're literally handling every piece of this, but we are seeing a lot of, and we have now increased capacity and able to bring service that is more done with you. And we're excited to be rolling this out at the beginning of the year for it. But it, 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 there's, there are three yeah. types. And there's several fee structures that work for all of them. But I think that the flat fee model that you know up front what it is you're getting and you can make that decision right then and there. Hey, they told me what their conflicts were. We've addressed everything. We've addressed how they make money. Look, if you go to an advisor's website and you can't see instantly within three minutes of clicking around what their services are and what they actually make, you're in the wrong place. You know, it's actually, this is hilarious. I, I tell people that all the time. First of all, if someone is a flat fee only advisor, they're going to be very proud to tell you that because it is the least conflicted model. And honestly, and, and I'll say this for you, Ryan, and I, I don't know this is true, but the math would make sense that in this model, even though it's the quote unquote right way to do business, in my opinion, it often doesn't earn as much money because you're not taking a percentage of those assets. Yeah. So that's, that's scalable. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in really quick. It's nowhere close. Like if we don't sell products, we make, we make significantly less money. Significant. Right. My buddies that all sell products, literally it's 60 to 70% of their revenue comes from selling the good stuff. They're not even the bad ones that sell whole life. I mean, disability and term like are primarily what they sell. 
And the revenues off disability are providing 60, 70% of the revenues, even the trails, because as they continue to be in business 10, 20, 30 years, the trail of you paying in or everyone paying in, they get a little small piece to service the, the policy and the, and the client. And that ends up being a lot of money. Right. And, and so that's why I explain to people like this business model that is using the least conflict of interest, doing business in the quote unquote right way, costs money for these people to do it that way. And so that's why, that's why I'm a big supporter of these models. And honestly, those three groups of doctors, right, that, that, that have different views on their personal finances and whether they do or don't need help. The group that is at the biggest risk is that third group that needs someone to do everything for them because they have no interest. And yet, and this has been, you know, been said by Jim Dolly. It's, I think it's a great quote, but like, by the time you know whether advice is good or not, you probably know enough to do it yourself. And, and so the problem is, is that that third group doesn't want to learn this stuff. And so I teach to that group, like this advice that I, that this gold standard is catered towards that group because I feel like they're the most at risk because they're outsourcing it and they probably don't know enough about personal finance to protect themselves. And that's why I, I really support these, this kind of model, because I think that you're trying to do business in the right way. These, these advisors are trying to do business in the right way. And, you know, despite the fact that they're probably going to take home less money because they're trying to do it the right way. So, you know, I, I think that that that's important to, to take home. But um, sp speaking of, of that. And, and, and you can, you can, I'm a big, big believer. I'm a big believer in teaching people how to think about stuff more than telling you what to do. So if these terms are a little confusing, assets under management, you know, fee only fee based or, you know, hourly versus flat fee, you could certainly find resources both on Ryan's website and on mine, the physician philosopher about this stuff to help you kind of tease out these details. So I don't want to get, I don't want to get lost too much in the weeds, but no, I, I appreciate you saying that. And it, it is nice to hear. And we, we haven't like rehearsed or Jimmy's actually never said any of that despite putting it on, on air. So it's, it's nice to, to hear because even in my own industry, I fight an uphill battle all the time, right? Regulators in, in the state of Washington, if you live in the state of Washington, I'm sorry, state's a little crazy because they don't believe in flat fee planning. They think that I should charge two to 3% of an AUM to work with people there. And that's totally fine versus charging a fixed flat fee. And they don't care what the flat fee is, even if it was half of what the AUM fee should be, because they don't think that it, it should exist, that it is not correct. So even from a regulatory standpoint, we fight it. And then from our own peers, we're ingrained. AUM is the thing. That is what you need to do. And that is how you scale. And I'm a part of a, a, a giant mastermind, if you will. I don't know. I got invited by a big RA to participate in their kind of accelerate teaching program. And they take, you know, people from across the country that are advisors that they love what they're doing and are, and they want to essentially help us. And they have told me repeatedly that I, the fact that I don't charge in assets under management, I will have a hard time scaling at mass, right? Because Clients yep. will be a lot harder to work with. They will require more work. Some clients will require less work, but in the end, the ones that will pay all the fees are the ones that have the most money. And so you've got basically the wealthier people subsidizing the cheaper clients. So then the cheaper clients can eventually become more expensive. And I just get grossed out by all of that because I believe sure. that people should be paying a different fee. Our service is a flat fee. If I'm going to work with Jimmy and I'm going to work with Jane and they're two separate physicians, you know, I know pretty much where you're going through and what needs to be done. And unless it's super out there, like Jimmy actually, you know, his, you know, grandfather is, you know, a, a giant tycoon in real estate and he's going to inherit hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, yeah, that planning is going to be a bit different and that isn't what we're really trying to do. But we even niche down to like the exact type of physicians that we want to work with. So I can offer it without having to, to reach into an AUM type model. But even in my own industry, like I'm getting, I'm getting fought right and left with it. And I'm like the type that is stubborn and dig my heels in and I'm like, hold my beer. Like, well, and it's, it's a tough situation because you know, you and I both know AUM advisors that are good people and they probably provide good advice, you know, and, and I'm not hating on individual advisors. So like what gets lost in translation here is people saying like, are, are you saying that you cannot have an AUM advisor and get good advice? Not what I said. You can get good advice from an AUM advisor. Absolutely. 
but there's going to be, Absolutely. but there's going, but there's going to be a conflict there. And so you just have to know that. And, and I think being educated about it. And like I said, I, I try to tell people what to do. I try to teach them how to think and, and just to be aware of where conflicts exist. So I think that's important, but so we've talked about fee only versus fee based. We talked about flat fee versus, you know, having a percentage of your assets managed versus hourly, different kind of fee models. So the, the last two, I, I think will take quite as much time, but the third one is a fiduciary. So a fiduciary is someone who is legally and ethically obligated to do what is best for you, the client. And what I always like to mention to people is the fact that I have to even say what this is, is scary. I think that if you had to go to the doctor and ask them whether they were taught and trained to do what is best for you, the patient, or not, like that there are doctors out there that, that were trained not to do that that is scary to me. And so like, I, I think it's sad that, you know, you, you kind of take that for granted in the healthcare world that, you know, do no harm. Like there, there are certain things, principles that we were taught uh, in medical school, but that's not necessarily the same way in the world of finance. Not even, not even close. And it's, it's incredibly frustrating because I look at this and, and we can talk about like the DOL rule that ended up not working out and getting delayed, but essentially it's telling you like, Hey, I'm a good person. That, that's really what it is. Mm. The gut check of like, I'm a good person. I'm going to do what's in your best interest. And the idea that that even exists in my industry makes me like nauseous because it shouldn't exist. Everyone should be a good person. But if your advisor has not put in, uh, in writing, a fiduciary oath, you are with the wrong advisor. It's better to yeah. not work with anyone probably than to work with someone who's not a fiduciary. Because if they can't put in writing that they're going to put your interests ahead of their own in the sense that they're not going to give you bad advice or mislead you in a different way that makes them more money or puts their interest ahead of yours. Why would you ever hire that person? And they need to do that a hundred percent of the yeah, time. It's not like, Oh, 5%. No, it's a hundred percent. It's like me. I don't want to go to the doctor and she's like, Hey, you really need to lose some weight. And if you do, here's a whole bunch of pills that you should do it with. And by the way, like I own part of that stock or hey, I'm compensated by the, the amount of pills that I sell you. Like, no, I, I want someone that will tell me, hey, lose weight, but I don't want it to be because I make more money. Yet my entire industry is built around that. It's that and it's that whole black box. And so this industry, we're going to see huge changes. And I bet you in like 15 years, everyone's going to be around similar model of what we're currently doing, but we're still different right now because it has been that black box. The internet is exposing all of this and it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing well, to see. Yeah. And, and just so I, I do think that's actually an important example so that people don't think that we're just making this up, you know, with the, the brokers and the insurance companies that fought the fiduciary rule. So I, I actually just, just give like a really brief snippet on that, Ryan, so people know what you're talking about. So to realize that this is a real it required thing. Basically, the brokers and the, the advisors and everyone out there to clearly disclose any conflicts of interest, any hidden fees, any backdoor payments that are usually buried in the fine print. And it basically just said, hey, you're not going to be able to hide in the fine print, which we all, no one reads. And you need to push this literally out to the open, like on your website. Here is my, you know, my conflicts of interest. Here's how I actually make money. And all the lobbyists and they, they went through and, you know, raised tons of awareness around it to, to do it. And, and really it was in retirement accounts. That's the kicker. It's like, yeah. they could have said, let's just take a crap product, whole life insurance. And they could have been like, Hey, Jimmy, buy this whole life product, like in your, you know, IRA. And then the, the DOL rule basically said, well, no, you, you have to basically do what's right, be a fiduciary and, and tell them like, if it's in their best interest to do that, fine. But if it's not, you need to, to not do that. And then they could have easily, just even if the rule got put in place, could have then said, okay, well, we're going to be a fiduciary with this hat on with your retirement accounts. So don't buy that product there. But as soon as I take the hat off, right. like in a normal with your taxable account or just with your money that hits your bank account, oh, buy this product. Not a fiduciary. You don't have to be a fiduciary. Like that's how much they were like throwing it uh, a fit on this is that they could still act like a non-fiduciary in one piece, but not all the time, which is so confusing. Like even for the advisor, like once one time I'm uh, a fiduciary, the other time I'm not. Well, that's not being a fiduciary. That's a joke. Yeah, and and, and we just like delayed that because the advisor, the broker dealers, the Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, those massive companies, Northwestern Mutual, they weren't happy that at some point 
it during your relationship for just a little bit of time or whatever account it was that they had to be a fiduciary. That's what they were upset about. Yeah. And, and, and we know this is true, right? Because just like anyone else in personal finance, like if I want to know what someone really values or appreciates, I'm going to follow their budget, see where the dollars go. And, and we talked about this on the show previously, but in, in the financial industry, $17 billion goes towards marketing and only $700 million goes towards uh, educating you know, pretty financially illiterate society. And so if you do the math there, that's $25 for every in marketing for every $1 spent in education. And so we, we know that this fiduciary issue is a problem, which is why, again, fee only flat fee fiduciary financial planners are the route to go. And then Ryan, wh why don't you talk about this? Why is it important from your perspective to have experience working with doctors? Why, why, why can't I just go to a financial planner that works with high income individuals? I mean, it's the same reason, honestly, that you think that everyone thinks that a physician's wealthy. Right. Everyone thinks you're in the top 1%. You're, you're, oh, you just finished training. Congratulations. Like, oh, you're making really good money now. Like, you're rolling in. Why aren't you driving this? You're car? rich. You're super rich. You, why don't you have this massive house? You know, they, most advisors don't understand. And even the ones that say that they work with physicians, they don't really get it if they didn't live it. If they're not a physician or married to one, I, I even go that far because it's true. I remember <laughs> all of the hard, the, 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 the pains of being pretty controversial. Yeah, it, it is, but it's true. I, I honestly think it's true. Going through this entire thing, Taylor and I have been together since the freshman year of college, going through this entire thing where I knew nothing about medicine to now all the way through and she's an attending and I know a lot about medicine now. If you don't actually go through that, it is really hard to relate to someone. I, I really, really believe that. It is really hard to relate to someone. Now, I'm not saying that people that aren't married to doctors can't be the advisors or good advisors because that's not true. Like it can still okay. be good advisors, but I think to truly understand and to do some life planning with clients and to really know what it is, like, unless it's like your, even your best friend, like your parents, maybe your spouse or a sibling, like you don't really understand what it's like to lose your spouse every fourth night and be feeling like you're kind of single half the time because they lose that night that they're on call, then they lose the whole next day because they're sleeping. Like it's a rough, rough gig. I mean, I know everyone is mm. like getting on their head, like, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, we it's get really it. tough. But you know, mm. there's so many different planning circumstances that if you don't work with physicians all the time, you're not necessarily going to understand, you know, different RVU models or different things that you're actually going through. And that's that's my biggest thing. I get hit up all the time. And like they're going to take it, you know, offense listening to this because there are advisors that listen to this show right now. They're listening that email me and say, Ryan, thanks so much for the, you know, that last show. I finally understand what my clients are talking about. That yeah. means you are not the right advisor to be working with that client. You should know everything that they're doing and what it is. Now, can I go do those procedures you're doing? Absolutely not. But should I understand how you're paid, what things are going on in the hospital? You know, most advisors, they don't even understand. Like if you said EMR, they're like, huh? I guess it's important to, to say there that, you know, if I'm going to cast stones at the financial industry, not being a financial planner myself, that I, I need to very transparently, outspokenly admit that the, the medical system is riddled with conflicts too. Unfortunately, I, I don't have a ton of control over that as a physician. But when you mentioned the billing and stuff like that, that that is so broken in medicine and i i guess i would be an absolute hypocrite if i didn't say that i don't recognize that's a problem so but everything and it, and it boils down yeah. to this last piece is making sure that you're understanding everything that it is before you hire someone right ask that hard mm -hmm. question how ryan how do you get paid and if i can't answer you in less than a minute you, you have some serious issues with that person <laughs> It's See, a good test. This is what it is, depending on maybe depending on service level, it's this fee or this fee. Or if they have one service level, it's this fee. It should be really, really simple, easy to understand. You should be able to calculate in your head, even if you're not a math person. And then right. at at the end of asking that, you ask the conflicts. And then at that point, you have to decide, are you okay with their answers? And if you're okay understanding right. how they get paid and where the conflicts are. And if you're okay with that, then you're good. At least you're aware of what it is. Absolutely. You got to ask those questions. So Jimmy, let's jump into our journal club here because it's also by a physician and it's at diversify.com. And this is a, a, a killer article by Doc G who's also been on the show called the best financial plans have four legs. And he breaks out four different types uh, of, of 
I guess the number of legs that you can have. And I'll just quickly go over it. The flamingo, one leg. The two-legger, as he calls it, which I wish he would have had a different name. The three-legged stool. Yeah, I'll have to <laughs> mention that to Doc G. Maybe a legend. And the fourth one is the dining room table. And so why don't you go into what each one uh, has? So like the flamingo, I'll just start. The flamingo is, uh, you know, one leg. It's W-2. All your income comes from this one place, right? The two-legger is maybe, hey, look, I've got all my income from one place, but I'm actually turning around and investing it. And so I've got another option, you know, broadly indexed, low cost, mutual funds, bonds, ETFs, whatever it may be. Then you've got the three and the four legger. And I think you're in the three leg. I think I'm in the four leg. But let's talk about that. Yeah. So, so three legs is essentially is all these steps add on. So again, you have your W2 income, your broadly based indexed investing, and then real estate exposure is, is the third leg that he gives. Although the fourth leg is having a side hustle. So I guess you could substitute either one of those and, you know, provide three legs. So for me, I, you know, we invest in, in uh, REITs. So we do have some exposure to real estate, but it's probably only about 5% of my portfolio. However, we do have W2 income. We broadly base our index passively, our investments. And then I obviously have this, the side hustle at the physician philosopher. So depending on whether you consider REITs a fourth leg like is that enough exposure to real estate does that zig enough or zag enough when the market zigs or zags you know that that kind of determines this and and so but either way doc g's point here is that the more legs you have the more stable the table is and the less likely everything is to fall if a brisk wind comes by or if you stumble upon financial calamity you're going to have the other three legs to kind of still keep you up and obviously the flamingo is the worst one. If you just, depending on your income, you don't really have another source of income that you could pull from. If times got tough, you're in a bad spot. Yeah. I mean, think of 2008 when everyone was experiencing the great recession and most people had, you know, and this is what general America does. Like they go and they have a job, they earn a W2 income, they get a paycheck. They might put money in their company stock or pension or whatever it may be. Maybe they don't, but they, and they spend everything, right? The average American can only handle a $400 emergency. Uh, which is really sad. Insane. You know, but, but, you know, then you've got, you know, layoffs that might be happy at the company and all of a sudden your only source of income, it's, we're in a horrible economy and you just got laid off. What do you do? You have no other backstops. And so, um, you know, I, I don't say you want to take from your investments, but the idea of the two-legger then kind of comes in is like, well, at least there's something else to help support. You get to a third leg where you've got some real estate exposure. I think we could also substitute like, or you have a side hustle. You've got stability right. inside there. So now you have three sources. So if one goes, yeah, that stinks, but you're not going to fall over or you're not going to be out on the street. And then the fourth one is that dining room table concept where there's, there's four legs. So you've got real estate, you've got side hustle, you've got, you know, your actual investments, and then you've got what you do as a normal day job. And I, I just like the the analogy. I think it was really simple. And that's why I wanted to highlight it here because most people, most physicians, like I think your jobs are very secure compared to corporate America, absolutely very secure. Maybe mm -hmm. not in your area if you live in some rural town and you somehow the hospital goes under, you can let go or whatever it is, you might have to move, but you can go do locums. Like the idea of me picking up and doing locums work, that doesn't exist for financial planners. And if I'm working sure. for another, let's call it Merrill Lynch. I couldn't just go pick up and go work for Morgan Stanley if Mara left me. Like I'd have to go apply and hope to get in. Physicians don't have that. So I think the W-2 piece, like you are more stable just being a physician, but it doesn't mean you are stable. And I like the extra sources, the extra quote unquote legs, as you call it. And you know, the best financial plans have four legs and I like it. Yeah. And I, I think it, it's also important to make sure that those legs are of equal length, you know, that you are trying to make sure that table is as stable as possible because you know, and I'll give you an example. I, I I know someone that I work with who came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, I'm 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 maxing out my four or three B now." And I was like, "There's seven years past training," and so I of course naturally gave them a high five and said, "Congratulations! I think that's great. Keep it going." But in my head, I was thinking like, "What have you been doing for six years?" Like, because they've been you know standing on that W two flamingo leg for so long, and they get a little nubbin for for their you know investments. So I, I think it's important to have enough exposure into these things to actually be safe too. It's not just that you're exposed a little bit. Yeah. And that's okay. Right. If you're seven years in and you're like, uh Oh, I don't have anything to show for it. Hopefully they like woke up and were like, Oh man, Jimmy's telling yeah. me this for years. And they 
finally got it going. Yeah. Good job. You maxed it out. Like that is one of those exactly. behavioral things that high five, celebrate the small win. Now, what are you going to do? All right. Keep I'm going and then pay down this debt or I'm going to go and, you know, actually max out my IRAs and do the back doors or whatever it is. Like keep it going. Don't stop. But I'm really happy you said the legs should be equal length because I coming from a real estate family, I know that my family has got like the dining room table concept, but their real estate leg is so much bigger. And I know, so you know oh my gosh, it's so much bigger. And I'm like, well, you're still kind of at a huge risk where 70% of your income or 80% of your income comes from one thing. That's that's usually bad. Anything in extremes is bad. So right now you might be thinking, Ryan, I just finished training or I'm several years out and I've just a W2. Like, am I screwed? No, you're not. But be aware and think like, hmm, what could I do? You know, and the first easiest one is to actually invest. But then, you know, is there a side hustle? Do you want one? Or maybe your spouse does one. Right. Can you be real estate? REITs, I think, do count for a portion of that. But I also think like yes. syndications, if you don't like to invest, I think you can, you know, look at actually investing in single family homes and, and other things that you could do. But if you don't want to invest, I mean, you don't in you don't want to manage real estate and you still want to invest in it, which I think everyone should, REITs are a, a great option or syndications are, are another good option for uh, that. I, I try to stay away from the crowdfunded stuff. Like the, 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 those things usually aren't stable. We've never seen a downturn in those. I know there's lots of people out there pushing those and think they're great. I, I want to see a, a downturn before I, I see what actually happens in that market before actually recommending it. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not in it yet either, you know, and so I have a hard time recommending it, but you know, certainly I go talk to Peter Kim at Passive Income MD when, when I have questions about that, because he's kind of my source for, for that sort of information. But I will say also that your spouse spouse's income could be a fifth leg, right? So, I mean, having two different sources of income from two different people, yes, you know, that's, that's a another leg that is important for our family. So I just wanted to mention it. Yeah, there. absolutely. And, you know, some people are, you know, they're dual physician couples and, I, you know, I, which is great, but don't think that because you're both physicians and you both could get up and move, like you don't need the other legs. That's not how that works. I've mm -hmm. heard it all the time, a bunch of times. Oh, well, my disability policy is my, my wife because she's also an anesthesiologist or whatever. It's like, no, 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 that's not how that works. And you guys have plenty of income to actually get real disability policies in case you really needed it. So anyway, Doc G, awesome work. Love the post. Make sure to tag it on social. If you're not following us, please follow. And like I mentioned in the last show, Jimmy and I are really trying to figure out what it is you guys want to hear more about. And if you liked this type of stuff, so we're trying to do a bunch of varying topics on advisors and the fire movement and you know, behavioral finance. We'd really, really love feedback from you guys. We already got some feedback and we hope to get a whole lot more from you. So please let us know what it is. And if you can share it with other physicians and their friends and families and spouses of physicians because we trying to grow the show and really trying to help get our message out there that you really need to be taking control over your finances. So thanks so much for being here. We've had a great time hanging out longer show than usual. Clearly we have a soapbox issue with this one. Thank you so much for being here. We, we appreciate it and I'll see you guys on Friday. Take care.